will we kind of ignore him, put him on a voicemail perhaps, or ignore the call, and just simply go our own way? God's messengers were the prophets who came in times of crisis to Israel, and they spoke God's word. And sometimes those calls came when it wasn't quite so convenient and maybe not so easy to listen. But the challenge is out there. God is trying to reach his people with a message. And will we listen? Today we are entering what is sometimes called the black hole of Bible reading. I don't know if you knew that, but when people start to read through the Bible, you know, in Genesis, and they go all the way through the Scripture, and they make that their goal, uh, sometimes when they come to First and Second Kings, and they read through this list of kings, and you got two kingdoms, and you got all these names and people, it can be hard to keep it straight. And then if you do plow through First and Second Kings, you get to Chronicles, and you get to do it all over again, and you're kind of wondering, now what's this about? And then when you move to the prophets, you wonder, aren't we talking about some of the same events that I just read about earlier? How does all of this fit together? Well, it is because the Bible is arranged topically and not chronologically. You can buy a chronological Bible and use that in your devotional time, and it'll put in the Psalms where they fit, where they were written, and it'll bring in the prophets at the appropriate place in the timeline. But our Bible is not arranged like that. Instead, in the Old Testament, what we find is that there are four main divisions to the Old Testament. You have the law, which are the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. You have the history, which are the next 12 books from Joshua through Esther that gives kind of the the history of the Old Testament. And then you have the poetry, five books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And then you end with 17 books that are the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, starting with Isaiah and going toward Malachi as we end the Old Testament. And so those, those books are grouped in that way, but the prophets really are found all the way through the Old Testament in different periods of time, starting with Moses and then going forward to Malachi. And the prophets are clustered around times of crises. Now today we're going to look at Elijah. And I'm not going to talk as much about, uh, as much about Elisha, but Elijah and Elisha came at a time of crisis when Israel had worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. And that had become normal in Israel. They had turned away from God. And so these prophets were sent to call people back to the one true God. But you'll have in the 8th century B.C., you'll have Isaiah and a group of prophets that were talking about the Assyrian crisis and the fall of the northern ten tribes. You'll have in the 7th century the Jeremiah group that precedes the Babylonian crisis and the fall of Jerusalem. In the 6th century, you've got Ezekiel and Daniel in the time of the exile. And then after the exile, you have Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi who come along. Now, if you want to know more about all of that, again, I'd invite you to come to the Old Testament survey class on the prophets that we're doing on Wednesday night, and you'll get a feel for where each of those books fit in. Now, the last time we were in the story in this series, we saw that the nation of Israel had been divided into two parts, the northern and the southern kingdom. And why did that happen? Well, it was because of Solomon's sin and also the nation's sin. 
God divided the nation because his people were sending a wrong message. You remember that God had chosen Israel to be a light to the nations. Out of all the nations on the earth, it wasn't because Israel was better than anyone else, but because God wanted to call out a people who would be uniquely related to him, who would be a witness to the world. And so he had chosen Israel to do that, and he had blessed Israel. And under David and Solomon, they prospered greatly. But Israel rebelled against God. Their heart was divided. They disobeyed God's command. They began to worship other gods. They worshiped Baal and his female consort, Asherah. And that became a stumbling block to the nation of Israel. God's people, by their disobedience, were sending a wrong message to themselves and to the world. It would be a little bit like this. I mean, I know this, this is a stretch, but if you could imagine Pastor Jason and, and I, uh, if we were robbing banks in the Lindstrom area here, and uh, our faces were on uh, mug shots, you know, everywhere around town or in the area, and we continued to preach on Sunday morning as though it was no big deal and there was nothing that had happened, uh, that would be sending a wrong message, wouldn't it? be sending a wrong message to you and to the people around us because it is a big deal how we live and God wants us to be faithful in our proclamation of the message true to the message he wants us to practice what we preach and during the 208 year period that the northern kingdom lasted there were 38 kings in both the northern and southern kingdom and only five of them were good In the northern kingdom, they were all bad. They were all evil, the Bible would say. Now think about that. I mean, America has been around uh, some 230 years, a little bit more than that now. And I think if we look back on the 44 presidents that we have had, I don't think any of us would say that they were all evil. Can you imagine that? You know, we've had good presidents. We've had some bad presidents, you know, and they, they're all kind of ranked higher and lower in terms of the top tier and the middle and the lower. But none of us would say that they were all evil. And can you imagine living under a period like that where you have one king after another? It started off on the wrong foot in the northern kingdom when Jeroboam erected golden calves to be worshipped at Dan and Bethel. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, that have led you out of Egypt. And he's taken them back to idol worship. And then every king that came along after Jeroboam seemed like they were doing their part to make things worse. It went farther and farther away from God. And yet, even as Israel was moving away from God, they were experiencing amazing prosperity. Archaeological digs that have been done in the area of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, uh, have shown that it was like a jewel in the mountains. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. And so here you had people living in Samaria in this kind of mountain setting, and uh, life was good. Few of them worried about the consequences of their idolatry and their abandonment of God's law. But in reality... They were on the brink of destruction. And here God patiently was waiting for them to turn. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet 
to call them to repent and to come back into a right relationship with him. And they ignored God's message. And the kingdom was divided, really, because God didn't need all 12 tribes to carry out his promise of sending a Messiah. He really only needed one tribe. And even that tribe, through disobedience, would later be disciplined. But the line of Christ would continue. And God would fulfill his promise in time to send Jesus. Now, think about that again. You know, here's a nation prospering, but moving away from God. Idol worship is becoming more and more common. Now, we don't think that we worship idols because we don't set up little statues all over to worship and bow down before. But we have our idols of materialism, of wealth, of gods of sex or power or money. And we give our time and attention and devotion to those things. And yet many in our nation are totally unconcerned and see no problem with that at all. Adam Barr wrote that the problem then, as it still is today, is that many people would rather have their feelings stroked and their selfish comforts satisfied than their souls saved. And I look at that and I think how easy it is for people to just live for today, think about our needs today, and not worry about eternity and being right with God. And that's what he was calling attention to. So what did God do? Well, God sent the prophets to call his people back to obedience. He would send nine prophets to the 19 kings in Israel over a 208-year period. And they were men like Elijah and Elisha, or Amos, or Hosea, and Micah, and Isaiah, who went to the northern kingdom. But only one prophet was heard in that 208-year period, and that was Jonah. And it wasn't by Israel, it was by Nineveh, who repented of their sin and were given another hundred years after that. Two of the prophets we read about in chapter 15 were Elijah and Hosea. And I hope you read through the chapter, but this is where we're going to jump into the scripture. We're going to look at Elijah in 1 Kings 17. One of the statements that's made about Elijah in the New Testament is that he was a man just like us. James 5.17. And I want you to think about that. Hold on to it. Elijah was a man just like us. All right, let me read for us 1 Kings 17, beginning at verse 1. It said, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So three years are going to pass, we read in the New Testament. There's going to be no rain except by the word of the Lord. They are going to enter into a time of famine. A time when the nation will be disciplined. And why was it in particular about rain? Why was that kind of the focus here? Well, it's because Baal was the storm god. The people worshipped Baal and they thought Baal was the god who controlled the wind and the rain. He's the storm god. And so we worship him and then he gives us the rain and then that gives us the crops. And Elijah is saying, I want you to see who really is in control of the wind and the rain. It is the one true God. It is not Baal. 
In fact, later um, in the DVD, they showed the picture of when Elijah dies, he is carried up to heaven on the chariots of fire, and Elijah sees him. Uh, That, too, was going against Baal worship because the worshipers of Baal thought that Baal was the one who rode on the chariots of fire. You know, he's the one who controls the heavens. And here it is, Elijah, the man of God, God's prophet, who is taken up to heaven in the chariots of fire. Whose God really is God is what this is all about. And I want you to think about how Elijah lived in a time of political, economic, and spiritual uncertainty. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel were ruling. They were wicked. They were evil. They turned the hearts of the people astray. They were self-centered. They were indulgent. Uh, It was all about them. And they oppressed their people. And so here Elijah's living in a time where he is feeling really all alone. Uh, Economically, they're being challenged by this famine. And spiritually, there is this uncertainty with the prophets of Baal and what's going to happen. And Elijah had to depend upon God for his daily bread. In this time of famine with the shortages, you know, Elijah needs to eat too. And so what does he do? Well, the word of the Lord in verse 2 came to Elijah and said, I want you to leave here. I want you to turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. And you will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. Talk about depending upon God for your daily bread. I mean, he's out there in the wilderness, and God said, I'm going to send the ravens to bring you the food you need for each day. And you can drink your water from the brook. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God was providing for his prophet. But then you go on to verse 7, you notice something else. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, here you are, you're thinking, okay, God, I'm trusting you. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. He's providing for you, you know, and you've taken this step of faith. And then the brook dries up. And you're probably wondering, I mean, have you ever been in a situation like that where you're going, now what do I do? I mean, I feel like I I have no money or or maybe you had lost your job or maybe things weren't going as you planned and there was an emergency, a crisis that came up and God, what do you do? Where do you turn? Well, Elijah again had to depend upon the Lord. And this time he sends them to a widow who lives in Zarephath of Sidon and he wants them to stay there. And Elijah will be dependent upon this widow who is also poor for his daily bread. And he asks her to make him kind of a small cake for himself. And she says, you know, I've only got like a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. And he says, take this part first and make it for me. And then you will have enough for you and your son as well. And so she did. And the flour didn't run out and the oil didn't run out until the day when God gave rain on the land. It was a miracle of provision again. But each day, Elijah had to trust God for his daily bread, just like us. I look at Elijah too, and as we go on in these stories, you know, Elijah felt outnumbered by the enemies of God. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like our world is changing and Christians are in the minority and it seems like it's getting fewer and fewer in some ways? Well, Elijah felt like that as well. 
in chapter 18, for example, uh, when we come to this confrontation with the priests of Baal, uh, we pick up the story in verse 16. First uh, Kings 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to them, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? You know, here's an example again of, of good being called evil and evil being called good. Ahab is the wicked king. He's the evil one. And what does he do? He sees Elijah and he calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. You know, if we just got rid of you guys, you know, you prophets, you believers, we wouldn't have these problems here. Life would be a lot easier. And Elijah said, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And so Elijah proposes this contest with the prophet of Baals. You got Elijah on one side, you got 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of uh, Asherah who are brought together. So 850 against one. And he proposes this contest that they each build an altar and place a bull on it as a sacrifice to their God and they each call upon their God and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So that sounds good. All of the people are summoned to witness this on Mount Carmel. The people gather around. And Elijah won the coin toss and elected to have the prophets of Baal go first. And so, you know, they, they start early in the morning. They build this altar, put the sacrifice on it, and they begin to call out to their God. Morning till noon. Nothing. Nothing. Not a sound. Nada. Nothing happens. And so comes around noon and, you know, they're still going and Elijah begins to taunt them. You know, he's kind of saying, maybe you guys need to call a little louder. You know, maybe, maybe your God is indisposed at the moment. Maybe he's out for a walk or maybe he's taking a nap, you know. And so they begin to call upon their God louder and they begin to slash themselves, cut themselves in their ceremonies trying to get the attention of their God. I mean, really what Elijah was doing here is kind of the first recorded trash-talking that you have in the Bible, um, as he is really taunting them in their approach to this false god. They go till evening, no response, no answer, nothing. And then Elijah said, have the people come to me. And Elijah builds an altar, places the wood on it, sets up these 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, puts the wood there, puts the sacrifice on it, and then he prays. Let me pick up the story for us in verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it again a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
You see what he's doing? I mean, he wants this thing doused with water. He wants this thing so wet that even a Boy Scout couldn't light this thing, you know? And he's, he's there. He wants them to know that this is God. It's not any kind of trick. It's not anything at all like that. And Elijah comes in verses 37 and 38. He prays and he says, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. Can you imagine? The fire of God fell and just consumed it all. And the people saw this. I mean, prophets of Baal go, nothing. Elijah speaks, calls on the Lord, and the fire fell from heaven. And the people fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It was an awesome, awesome moment. You know, we need to remember that even though we may feel outnumbered at times by the enemies of God, That when God is on your side, God plus one is a majority. And that God isn't limited by the size of the number of people who pray. He isn't limited by the number of people who gather to worship in a church. Because God is God and He is still on His throne in heaven. And when His people humble themselves and call upon Him, God still does amazing things. I was talking to my son Jason over the Christmas break and we were having a discussion about kind of what's going on in America right now. And, and he um, pointed me to a book that I had by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man. And I had not read it yet. I had it on my stack of books that I'd like to get to to read. And he said, you know, there's an interesting chapter in there at the end. And I read it yesterday where G.K. Chesterton talks about the history of Christianity. And he said, you know, there were five times from the time of Christ until his day when it looked like Christianity had gone to the dogs and that all was being lost. Uh, It was being challenged whether it was by the Aryan controversy or whether it was by uh, Muslims or whether it was by, uh, you know, Voltaire and the skeptics and the Enlightenment or other periods of time like that when it just looked bad for Christianity. Christianity was going to the dogs, but Chesterton said each time it was the dog that died and the church was reborn. And God did it through different movements and he would raise up a whole new generation. If parents had fallen away, he would use their children. If it was the church that had died, he would work outside the church, sometimes in a monastic movement, sometimes in a parachurch movement. But God is still God and he will build his church. And he will be honored. And so we don't have to worry about God as though things are getting bleak, you know, and we're kind of, you know, trembling and thinking, you know, what God, what's God going to do or how's he going to do it? God is God. And we can walk in confidence and trust him to provide for us as well. But there's a third picture, too, that I think is helpful for us to see about Elijah. That Elijah also felt exhausted and discouraged at times. Here's this great prophet who has this mighty victory over the prophets of Baal. He has this mountaintop experience, but it is followed by a time of depression. And we read that in chapter 19, where, again, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of them. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, and he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now here is this great prophet, exhausted and discouraged. And God doesn't rebuke his prophet. He restores him. And how does he restore him? Elijah needed rest. He needed deep sleep. He needed food. He needed physical strength. And he also needed a fresh vision of God. He needed to hear from the Lord. And I think about, you know, for us, there, there are times when ministry can be draining and your adrenaline gets, you know, sucked up and you're tired and after a big, you know, high, you can have those times when you feel really down. Caregivers can be drained. Caring for someone you love day after day after day can be physically draining. Times of crises in your life, stress can drain you. And what is it that we need? You know, when, when we're really drained and we're feeling like our tank is empty, I mean, we can be really discouraged. You know, that's why a lot of pastors take Monday off because after Sunday, they just feel like they gave everything out and Monday they're just down. And so they want that day to kind of rest and recharge. There are times when we go through those kind of experiences in our life. We are creatures. We have limits. And what do we need? Sometimes the best thing is a good night's sleep. Or a good meal to make sure that you're still eating as you need to. And we need to hear from God. We need the time in His Word. We need time in prayer. We need to be fed spiritually. And I look at that and I think, you know, Elijah was a man just like us. He needed to trust God when life was uncertain. He needed to trust God when he felt outnumbered. And he needed to trust God when he was discouraged. And so do we. Now one last picture I want to give us and pick up on in the story that I thought was really good. And that is how God demonstrated how much he loved Israel and us through the prophet Hosea. Hosea is told by God to marry a prostitute. And her name is Gomer. Now, there's some debate about that among commentators. You know, did, did God really want him to marry a prostitute? Was she already a prostitute, or did she just sort of have that kind of wayward heart? Because it just seems hard to fathom that God would do that. And then, despite her marriage to Hosea, this woman, Gomer, decides she's going to keep her night job. And she continues to leave her husband for days at a time, even though he is still supporting her. And after more time passes, and we don't know exactly how long, God tells Hosea to find his wife and to show her that he still loves her. 
In Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says this, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, You are to live with me many days, and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. What was God doing? Well, Israel had committed spiritual adultery by their worship of the Baals. They're going after false gods, and God was calling them back to himself. And in spite of their sin, God still loved Israel. God still wanted to have a relationship with them, but they would not listen. And so God used Hosea to convey this message of his great love. Now imagine... Imagine Gomer working at a cheap motel on the wrong side of town. And Hosea finds out where she is, and he pays her manager to see her. And when Gomer hears a knock on the door, she is expecting her next customer, and when she opens the door, she is stunned to see Hosea. And before she can say a word, Hosea says to her, I love you, and it's time to come home. It's time to come home. Can you imagine that? I mean, such love and forgiveness is hard for us even to believe. I mean, Hosea had every right to divorce her under the law. He could have had her put to death for what she had done. But he loves her, and he wants her back. That's how much God loves you and me. The book of Hosea is an amazing picture of God's mercy and his love. When I think about this chapter of the story, these things come to mind. God wants us to be a light to the world around us, but we can only do that if we will walk with Christ. We need to walk in the light just as he is in the light, confessing our sin, turning from it, and walking in obedience to his word. God wants us to trust him when life is uncertain, When we feel outnumbered and when we feel discouraged, he wants us to remember that he is still on the throne. God is God and we can trust him. And thirdly, God wants us to know how much he loves us. And he wants us to love him in return in that same way with all of our heart, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength to put him first. What a great way to live. God is calling Will we take his message and will we put it into practice in our life? Will we hear what he is saying and listen and obey? It's time to come home. Let's pray. Father, such love just is hard for us even to imagine. God, you see our sin. You see our waywardness. You see the times when we have disobeyed and yet you are constant in your love for us. And you are calling out a people for your glory who will represent you in this world, who will say, God, I want you to be first in my life, in my heart. And I will love you with everything that I have and I will lay down my life for you. God, you've done that for us. How can we do anything less? As we begin a new year, would we have that kind of resolve in our heart that says, Jesus, 
you're the Lord of my life. You're my Savior. You're my Redeemer. And I give you everything I have. Amen.